our text this morning as we hear from the living God and his word is 1 John chapter 3 and verses 1 to 10. And we're continuing this morning then in this Easter season, this very brief survey of only select passages from 1 John. We continue for two more Sundays. Before then, we have Ascension and Pentecost, after which we move into the season of Trinity when we begin our next uh, rather lengthy series, which will be covering the books of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. So uh, a major shift as we will be considering these Old Testament narratives and their, uh, their place within the scriptures and their import for our lives. But today, we continue in 1 John. Last week, we were 1 John 1, 1 to 2, verse 2. This morning, we jumped ahead to chapter 3, where we'll spend this week and then complete chapter 3 next week. But I do have one regret in how I divided the reading for this morning, and that is that I should have started it in verse 29 of chapter 2. So if you can, have your Bible there open to 1 John, and we'll move through this passage, or at least most of it, rather straightforwardly. But to start, look at verse 29 of chapter 2. Because I think the foundation to the whole of this morning's text and sermon is actually in that verse. Chapter 2, verse 29, John writes, If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And I think the key for us as we consider verses 1 to 10 of 1 John 3 is the assumption that John knows his readers would agree with and that I assume you do as well. Namely, that God is righteous. If you know That he is righteous, John says. And as I reflected on it, I thought there could be nothing more foundational to the meaning of the Bible than that. Nothing that could have a more profound impact on our everyday lives than that. That God is righteous. That God's character and God's ways define what it is. To be righteous. No one can bring some standard against which they evaluate God. God himself defines righteousness. Do you remember what we read last week in chapter 1 verse 5? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, John says, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In him is no darkness at all. God is righteous. So it is from that assumption that John then infers that everyone who has been born of God lives righteously. With that as the foundation, then I think the most important question that John answers in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, though John doesn't put this as a question. I'll put it as a question and suggest that John answers it for us. But the most important question John answers is therefore this. How does this work? 
What's the reality? What's the operating principle in my life that will bring about righteous living? God is righteous. Got it. Those born of God live righteously. Got it. How? <laughs> when I wake up on Monday morning, or Tuesday morning, or any morning, why am I going to live righteously? Why? What will it be that will bring that about in my life? And I think John gives us the answer to that in these verses, and we'll spend the majority of the sermon focused on it. And I suggest to you that the answer is hope. Hope. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone, John writes, who thus hopes in him purifies himself or herself as he is pure. As he is pure. If you know that he is righteous. The key is hope. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I end up reading a fair amount of 1 Peter 1 in this sermon for some reason. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's our living hope. Did you notice what John says exactly there in verse 3? He says, everyone who thus hopes, thus hopes, that is, hope is focused on something that John's already been talking about, and that something is the same thing that Peter just talked about in the verses I read, and that John also talks about in verse 2 of our text, chapter 3, verse 2. Look at that. We know, halfway through the verse, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. That's your hope, Christian. It is, of course, the second coming. It is the great and final appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is eternal life. In the new heavens and the new earth, we shall be like him, John says. Which means, actually, I should have started our reading this morning in verse 28 of chapter 2. Shouldn't I have? Because what's the focus of verse 28 of chapter 2? Sometimes you only discover all this when you actually start putting a sermon together. You realize, oops, <laughs> bulletin's already printed, but I should have started it in chapter 20, in chapter 2. The focus of verse 28 of chapter 2 is also the second coming. Look at that. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When he appears. This is our hope. 
John puts front and center to the call to live righteously the great hope of the Christian. So that now our text that we're looking at begins in verse 28 of chapter 2 and goes to verse 10 of chapter 3. And uh, consider it in two parts, though really the sermon is the first part and we'll say a couple things about the second half at the end. But we'll consider firstly verses chapter 2 verse 28 up to chapter 3 verse 3, which I've already started talking about, where we're focusing on what this hope is, how it works, different aspects of it, what it looks like in our lives. And then ever so briefly, ever so frustratingly briefly, we'll consider verses 4 to 10 in chapter 3. And that is what the results of this hope would be, or rather, what the results are if you don't have that hope. So, what this hope consists of, and then what the results are if you have it or don't have it. Those are the two sides of this. You need both sides. There's a lot of overlap here. But the thesis here basically is this, that true Christian hope will change us. It will change how you live. The proof of being a Christian isn't just having a hope. It's having a hope that makes a difference in your life. I'll say that again. The proof of being a Christian isn't just having a hope. It's having a hope that makes a difference in your life. It's having a true hope. And a true hope, according to John, is a purifying hope. A purifying hope. That's verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself or herself. That becomes the main idea of what we're saying this morning, and we'll come to that verse a little bit. Let's move through this text together, or at least the first part of it. What hope consists of, and I'll briefly mention here five, uh, five perspectives on hope. Beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2. It's going to be one per verse. One per verse for five verses, so they're going to go quickly on the subject of hope. First, verse 28. Hope is secured by abiding. Hope is secured by abiding. John says, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abide in him, John says. Remain in him. Because when he appears, we want to have confidence. This is the hope that we have. Hope is not in the biblical conception wishful thinking. It's not like, I hope it will be sunny tomorrow. It may or may not be sunny tomorrow. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confident expectation of a certain future. (laughs) How do we secure that confidence? We abide. We remain. We stay. John loves this term. John uses this term a lot in his letters, probably because Jesus used it. So here's John, the Gospel John, chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus speaking. Abide in me, Jesus says. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Stay faithful. Persevere. Remain. Doing that is what secures our hope focused on the coming of the Lord. Remain committed to the truth, to the teaching that you've heard. And I say it that way because that's exactly what John says he means by this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. So just up the page a little bit to verse 24 of chapter 2. Listen to how he explains it. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. John says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Do you see the connection? How do you abide in the Son? By letting the truth of the gospel abide in you, the truth that you have heard, by holding on to that. Continue to believe the gospel. Be real, be faithful, be loyal to Christ. This is the same as Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 21 to 23, Colossians 1. And you, Paul says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the great hope that we have. And here it is. If indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's Colossians 1, verse 23. Hope is secured by abiding, (coughs) allowing the truth of the gospel to abide in us. Secondly then, verse 29 of our passage, 1 John 2, verse 29. The second thing I'll say, hope is then manifest in righteousness. Hope is manifest in righteousness. John says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Our hope is made visible, if you will. It's made visible in our pattern of life. People who have real hope live righteously. Those who claim to be born of God will be righteous like God. This is the point. If you know God is righteous, they have a seed within them that must produce a righteous life. 1 Peter again, chapter 1, this time verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, Peter says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. And I think John means that there is a pattern of life that is our hope manifest in our lives. It's not perfection, but it's direction in our lives. Not perfection, but it is direction, and it's everything. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's just a text like Psalm 11, verse 7. Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. 
the upright shall behold his face. God is righteous, innocent of evil, always doing right and making right judgments. And this is what will characterize his children as well. Once again, 1 Peter chapter 1. I told you I read the whole chapter just about. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. This time, as obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Our lives are the test, brothers and sisters. Hope is manifest in a righteous life. But, thirdly, such hope, (laughs) manifest in righteous living, is ever so critically established by love. It's not something you drum up of your own effort. It is established by love. It's chapter 3, verse 1. This hope we have is established by God's love. It seems like our apostle here is simply overwhelmed with the concept when he starts in on verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, John writes, that we should be called children of God? And so we are, he says, to be called God's actual children. I mean, it would have been more understandable if he called us friends or something but children, because that's what we actually are. This is the content of his love for us. Which means that our hope, the hope that is secured by abiding, that is manifest in righteousness, isn't predicated on us. It's predicated on him. Because it's established, it's built on his love. What kind of love, John exclaims, what kind is this? What class, what kind of love is this? It's something foreign. It's a kind of love foreign to the human race. It's otherworldly. John's language here expresses the same concept, for example, as when the disciples ask a question like, what kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. It's, it's, it's an, another category. Or the same wording, the concept as in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where Peter writes, since all these things, the heavens and the earth, are thus to be dissolved, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We ought to be people of a different kind. This is a love of a different kind, And we are, John says, we are children of God, God who is righteous. This is reality. It has real life consequences, any number of them according to the scriptures. We can go to God as our father. If we ask our father for bread, he won't give us a stone. If we're joint heirs with Christ, Paul says, the list could go on and on. The point is it's all established by love. Not 
object-oriented love primarily, but subject-oriented love. God's the focus here. God himself is love. And his love is not discriminate. It's based on his very nature. (laughs) What a difference it makes in our lives. It's of such a different kind that we as recipients of it are not known by the world, John says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We find in our lives something of the same reaction the world has to Jesus because this love has had an impact. This love makes us like Christ. So our hope is established by love. Fourthly then, I would say of verse 2, 1 John 3 verse 2, This hope is fulfilled in Christ-likeness. It's fulfilled in Christ-likeness. Continuing the thought, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. God's plan is to make every Christian like Christ. Have you thought of it that way? God's plan is to make you like Christ. Do you believe that? Note John's language. He says we are already, he didn't, well, John doesn't say already, we are now God's children. If you're a believer, you are a child of God now. Maybe you're disappointed in what God has produced thus far. But the great truth of this text is that God hasn't finished with us yet. Because even as we are God's children now, the full benefit of that status can't even be imagined in this world. It has to be revealed in the end. It's our great hope. What is now a process in our lives will become an instantaneous accomplishment when Jesus appears. Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Hear that? He has predestined you, Christian, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You and I will be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? I don't know entirely. I don't think John knows entirely. This much I do know. It means holiness and righteousness. Because in as much as glorified humanity can be like incarnate deity, will be like Jesus Christ. What else can be said? It does, of course, mean a physical reality as well. Philippians 3, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes, and from it we await a Savior. Do you hear the hope? (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, incorruptible, glorified, spiritual, 
The fulfillment of hope is Christ-likeness. And so then finally, fifthly, verse 3, I would say hope then is characterized by purity. And everyone who thus hopes, do you hear now what John's saying? Who thus hopes, given all that we've just talked about, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself or herself as he is pure. You see, there's an inescapable logic to John's words here, and it's this. If you know someday you'll be like Christ, if you hold fast to that blessed hope, then that fact will build in you a desire to become like him now. Will it not? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? You and I, we all operate, we all live, we all make our decisions, all our choices on the basis of hope. It's just a matter of what you're actually hoping in. The key question isn't whether or not hope drives your life. The key question is, what's the hope that's driving your life? Is the hope the return of Jesus Christ and the expectation that you, for all of your failures and all of your struggles now, will be like him. If it is, it'll mean something in your life. It'll mean your life will be characterized by righteousness, holiness, purity, not perfection, but direction. We cannot have a passionate longing to be like Christ in the life to come without that affecting the life we live now. This is John's whole point. Fix your hope on him. And in a sense, the rest will follow suit. It's a matter of certain confidence. When John speaks of the Christian's future, there's no uncertainty in it. It's based on what Jesus Christ has already done. The only reason it's referred to as hope is that it's still future, at least from our perspective. And that certain future, with all the benefits and the blessings of being like Jesus when he returns, provides the motivation to become more like him now. John doesn't say in verse 3 that a believer should purify her life or that a believer should purify his life. He simply says in the present tense, the believer purifies. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, purifies herself as he is pure. which then is exactly where John now goes in the implications that follow in verses 4 to 10 of our passage. We're coming to it, and the time is gone. This always happens to me. We come to it now near the end of the sermon time, and, and so we don't go to detail, but that's okay, because I think the key to the whole thing is to see that it's all the result of hope in our lives. 
it seems absolutely critical to me that we don't read the content of verses 4 to 10 apart from the content of verses 1 to 3, or verse 28 of chapter 2 to verse 3 of chapter 3. That the description, the, the implications that John now spells out for the believer who lives in hope, or actually rather for the unbeliever who doesn't live in hope, simply follow in verses 4 to 10, brothers and sisters. Based on a hope that is secured by abiding, manifest in righteousness, established by love, fulfilled in Christ's likeness, characterized by purity in light of all that, I think we can make some decent sense of where John's going. He says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And we're right back to where we started. John turns in verse 4 to those who do not live as if they wish to become like Jesus. To those who do not have the purifying hope that he's upholding for us. Let me, before we read the bulk of this text, walk you through just one central observation as we then reflect on verses 4 to 10 ever so briefly. Consider just this from verse 4. Knowing now that we're looking at the other side. Verse 4. Everyone who, rather than living in a purifying hope, makes a practice of sinning, also practices lawlessness, John says. Sin is lawlessness. And here John reveals the true nature of sin. Not that it's just individual, unrelated, random acts, but that it originates from an attitude that rather than hoping in the future, resents God's righteousness. Rather than hoping in God's righteousness, resents it. It resents God's moral demands on our lives. It's the attitude that John refers to as lawlessness. The word, Greeklings, the word is, two of whom are in the front, the word is anomia. Namas is law, right? Anomia. Ah is like uh, the English prefix un, like unkind, not kind, not law, anti-law, if you will. Lawlessness, anti-law. The key is that John doesn't just mean that every sin is in some way an infraction of the Mosaic law. Of course it is. That, that would not be a substantive point to make. The word anomia is used to refer to something much deeper. This becomes the fundamental contrast that John draws out in the rest of the passage. It's used more than 200 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I just want you to listen to one. Don't turn there. It's Leviticus 26, verse 43. Just listen. Leviticus 26 is about the penalty for covenant disobedience. But you get to verse 40 in Leviticus 26, and it sounds like 1 John. The Lord says this. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, if 
Then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, their anomia, their lawlessness. Then the Lord says, I will remember my covenant. And here's verse 43. And they shall make amends for their iniquity, their anti-law. Because, here's the meaning of it, because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Do you hear that? They spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. That's lawlessness. To be lawless doesn't mean simply to break the law. It means to disdain the very idea of it. It means to reject the righteousness of God. The biblical truth John taps into now is that it's from the lawless heart that acts of sin follow. That's the condition of the human heart that the Son of God came to do away with. That's the condition of the human heart since the fall. So that I think now, with time gone, we can let John's words finish our time together, reading from verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him or her, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, here's the summary, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's where we pick up John's thought next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.